21 family members, generations, and I tell you, I have never seen what's happening there right now. So I'm so excited in my heart. But we need to focus. <laughs> we have a great subject matter before us, and this is what we're going to do tonight. Let me hit for just a few moments, and what I have up here, and if, I hope you brought your notes from week to week. I, I'd recommend it maybe even bringing a binder where you could keep your notes. If you weren't here last week or subsequent uh, earlier weeks, we can send you notes. And I will say this, any chapters that we have not prepared notes for yet, like um, 10, 11, 14, 15, 16, I think those are the only ones you don't have notes. I'm going to tailor those for this study, send those to Pastor Jeff and or Pastor Matt, and that can be made available to you, okay? As Pastor Jeff said, we've killed a lot of trees to make all these, all these notes, all right? Don't tell anybody. But, um, but you could get it as a, a, a Word document or a PDF file as well, okay? Just know that that's available to you. But I really, really want to focus on chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, but I've got to reemphasize, because there was just so much every week, so much to cover here. I want to reemphasize the importance. Really there, if, if I could highlight looking back and say, take this with you, it's the key. I would say there are two aspects here that are so important that are usually missed. One is the scroll. Do not forget the importance of the scroll. It's a scroll of redemption. You see it in chapter 5. You see it again, the seals being broken in chapter 6. We've talked about that. The scroll physically can't even open until chapter 8. And we've seen the body of Christ out of all nations without number, multitude, before the throne of God, before the scroll rolls open with the details of what's coming in the tribulation. But that scroll is integral to understanding the book of Revelation. Yes, you do have the seven messages to the churches before that. Yes, there's a revelation of Jesus in his glorified body. But there's so much from chapter 5 on because the bottom line is everything else in Revelation. Remember, that's the third part of that table of contents, chapter 1, verse 16. Things that are yet to come, the future, that's all in the scroll. I relate that scroll, by the way, do you remember this, back to the book of Daniel? And in Daniel chapter 7, you have this vision, and, um, and, the, and, 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 and the father is committing to this one who appears to Daniel. He sees him like a son of man. He looks like a man, but he's worshipped in heaven. No other way to look at this except he's the God-man. He's the Messiah. And many, many Jews even in that day acknowledge that that would be the Messiah. But remember that in Daniel chapter 12, Michael the archangel says, seal this up. It's not time yet. I want you to think about the day in which we live. Now is that time. In Daniel's day, we're talking over 2,600 years now. Daniel's day, he's told, seal it. It's not time yet. We are living in that day. I remember I was in a doctoral class with um, the Assemblies of God. 
did my doctoral work at Regent University, but it took a couple of courses with the Assemblies of God. And I'll never forget the professor, and he got animated. He said, so many people are like, wouldn't it have been incredible to be alive in the days of Jesus and walking along with Jesus and seeing the miracles, or maybe in the Old Testament, watching the Red Sea part, and he's going on like this. And he was right. They were all saying, wouldn't it be amazing to live in the last days right before the Messiah comes back? They were looking at our day, and here we are. Now is the time that the seals are about to be broken. Okay, That's the day in which we live. No longer will the scroll remain closed. Now we are living in that day. So what an amazing day. Now, the other is this, to understand a major, and this is the, this is the, the evil entity that the book of Revelation deals with, and that's Babylon. There's a world system, and it's already raised. I talk about it as raised, yeah, when evil raises its ugly head. And you had these notes from last week, but I I need you to remember that Babylon to the Jewish people, yes, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and these are the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and so on. You remember this, but that was the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And that was evil in itself, but if you study Babylon the history of Babylon, in the scriptures and outside the scriptures, you have to understand, this goes back 5,000 years. This goes back, it is the seabed. We're talking in the book of Genesis, we're talking the days of Nimrod, and Nimrod was probably the one, because it speaks about the plains of Shinar. That's Babylon, that's that area. He's the one that I believe, and the scriptures seem to indicate this, that he was behind He's not directly connected with the Tower of Babel, but he's in that context. And that Babylon to the Jewish people, from the very beginning, was it represented. And the word means confusion, by the way, Babylon. It, and it's confusion from the pit of hell. It's the kingdom of darkness. But you got to, and I won't go into all of this because it doesn't directly pertain, but if you study the history of Babylon, both what is Um, somewhat legend and fable, but also what is archaeologically proven. Um, It is sordid. It is evil. But it's not just tabloid things. Why even talk about it? The fact is, it was a familiar spirit right from the very beginning. Babylon was the seedbed for, for idolatry, for sexual impurity, for rebellion against the God of heaven. Nimrod, and this is part of legend, but this comes to us through archaeology. But you have to understand, legend and what we think of as mythology was the world to these people. And there was a real lady who in history was married to Nimrod named Semiramis. And she was known as the priestess, the high priestess of, of, um, of darkness. And she was also known as the creatrix of the universe, all these titles going back. What's so interesting, and I'll just say this, she, and it's sorted, but she had a baby. And the baby's name was Tammuz, which in Hebrew means sprout. And, you know, you say, well, how does all of this connect? Well, hundreds of years later, in Ezekiel's day and Jeremiah's day, God shows prophets and says, let me take you to the temple. And 
look at the, and it was ladies that he was pointing out, ladies were given to the worship of, uh, of the, 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 um, the queen, her name was also known as the Queen of Heaven. That was one of the names of Semiramis through history. And the Holy Spirit said, and that was to Jeremiah, if not Ezekiel, because one was Tammuz, the other said, they are weeping over their worshiping the Queen of Heaven, and they're weeping over Tammuz. Who was Tammuz? Tammuz was in mythology, but there was a real person. Tammuz, and I'm, I need to, 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 to focus in this to, to get back, but let me show you the seedbed here of evil. Semiramis claimed after Nimrod died, she was impregnated and claimed that he became the sun god. I know this is bizarre, but this is all part of their teaching in Babylonian history. He became the sun god, impregnated her with a sunbeam. That's bizarre. But she gave birth to Tammuz. And then Tammuz, so here you have a miraculous birth because he's not on the scene. So she claimed, she claimed that this child was born miraculously, that this was not something with Nimrod. This was something miraculous from the gods. Then in history, this is part of archaeology, he's killed, but he has this miraculous resurrection. You begin to see when you study these ancient Babylonian, these traditions and so on, these legends, that already Satan was bringing a counterfeit. Miraculous birth, miraculous resurrection, all in this the, the seedbed of iniquity. So you have to understand, and when, when hundreds and hundreds of years, well, actually thousands of years later, when God says to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're worshiping the queen of heaven. They're worshiping and weeping after Tammuz. They're bringing, it says, they're bringing raisin cakes in worship. In other words, they're bringing offerings before. It shows you the familiar spirit that had not been broken. John brings this all back. He takes for the, what, what Babylon was in all of the Old Testament and all of the early history of the Jewish people and even before, before Abraham. He uses Babylon over and over again. Mystery Babylon. And I'm going to refer to it in three, I, I, I told you, and this is a key to understanding the evil side of this, but you've got to understand that what Babylon was to the Jewish people, Rome was in the first century to the Christians. And what John wants to show us here is that it's the same seedbed. It's a world spirit. It's a world system. It opposes the God of heaven. It is idolatrous. It is sexually immoral. Uh, very impure. And so I need you to understand that it's like he flips back and forth. And this is why people get confused with Revelation. One moment he's talking about a seven-hilled city, which everybody knew in that day. That was the nickname for Rome. He's talking about Rome, and, and, uh, and then he's talking about Babylon. What is this? Well, what he's talking about is this world spirit, this familiar spirit that has never gone away. It's the kingdom of darkness. But in the last days, he shows 
and you know that it's not just first century that he's talking about. You know it because he connects it with the bodily return of the Lord Jesus. He's coming back in his glorified body. The resurrection of the dead is included. All of that has not happened yet. That is all associated with this last day's expression of the worst evil on planet Earth. There's a three-stranded cord here or expression of Babylon. And this will help you. And I had to rush through this, but I want to reemphasize. And then we're going to go to chapter 19. In chapter 13, I want to reemphasize, when you see a beast coming up out of the sea, remember I touched on this, Jewish mind, the sea was always the Gentile world. We say it this way, the sea of humanity. It was considered evil, dangerous, chaotic, That's the world. But then you see a second beast coming up out of the land. Okay, My conviction is that probably John is saying that because it indicates that the second beast who has religious significance is coming up out of Israel. Probably has has Jewish, uh, Jewish roots. As I look at it and I'm inferring this, I can't teach it doctrinally, but this is my conviction. Why else? Would the Jewish nation make a seven-year peace treaty with a Gentile and possibly a Muslim Gentile? And I went into that. I can't even go back and teach all of that. If you're interested, there is an incredible book. It's really sound. It's called The Islamic Antichrist. It's really, really good. And it, it, it speaks to where the world is right now and the Islamization of, of Europe right now and major nations of the world. It's very, very interesting. But why would the Jews trust any Gentile with a seven-year peace treaty except that the second in control in a one-world government has Jewish blood? And what I see in chapter 13, so let's just bring it to this and then move to chapter 19 and on. Chapter 13 to me is the one-world government. It's the Babylon expression of the government. It's the political world system. And it starts with, and when you look at the trumpets and the bowls and the judgments and, and how many, you know, 1.2 at least billion people disappearing from the earth, and everybody's going to go for the government. They're going to say, you've got to solve these issues. You've got to come to our rescue. So you have a one-world government coming together. There's a global everything in government. But there's a figurehead that's leading that. When John speaks about the Antichrist, when Paul speaks about the Antichrist, they talk about a spirit of Antichrist, but they also talk about an individual. And I happen to believe that there will be a political system, a government system, a global government system, but it will have a figurehead, okay? That's chapter 13. But then when you come to chapter 17, and so what's going on in 14, 15, 16, that's where you have fast motion to the last three and a half years. So think about it this way. 13, I'm sorry, 14, 15, 16. You've got now the bold judgments. You've got the last three and a half years of judgment, and everything is intensified. The trumpets, all of that was one-thirds. In other words, Great tribulation, uh, great, great judgment and the wrath of God, but one-third of the earth and the sea and everything is affected. God saying, I'll be merciful to the two-thirds if you'll repent. But once the bowls and 
everything starts at that point. Even Satan himself knows that his time is short, John says. Everything is amped up. In the last three and a half years, the bowls that are poured out in judgment from heaven are even more intensive until you come to the last bowl judgment where cataclysmic destruction of the earth. And by the way, the language of that last bowl judgment in chapter 16 lines up with the sixth seal. Do you recall that? The seals are like the preface on the outside before you get in the scroll. So in other words, those seals are anticipating generally how things are going to get worse and worse and worse once this scroll is open. But that sixth seal is looking prophetically forward to what the last bowl does. And that's when the islands of the earth, the, 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 the mountains are falling into the sea. There's whether it's asteroids or comets, but there is just cataclysmic destruction of planet Earth by the end of the tribulation. You also have another strand of Babylon. So you've got a one-world government, and I just touched on this lightly, but in chapter 17, so this is a clue, and you can drill down with the notes that I've given you, And again, even though the book, and we may be out of them, I don't know, there's one or two copies. If if anybody wants, I'm happy to give more. I'll I'll send more to Pastor Jeff if you you need them. They're available to you. But in the last part, the last third of the book, I cover doctrines. There are 48 different doctrines. If you want to drill down on the beast and... The, the one world church and the one world economic system, all of that is there in detail. Even though the book only goes verse by verse through chapter 7 in the book, when you go to the last third of the book, it's an overview theologically. So if you want to learn more about the millennium, you want to learn more about the new heavens, you want to learn more about, about Babylon and all this that I'm talking about, that's there. Okay, So that's in the book if you want to drill down. You have to think in terms of one world government, one world religious system. Can I remind you that all over Europe today, and I showed you just a few of the images, but if you put this in as a key word, you will see this. There are statutes all over in front of government buildings. It's on one of the euros. It's on their stamps. It's on the phone cards. You will see the exact picture out of Revelation chapter 17. And it is a woman sitting on the back of the beast. She thinks she's controlling the beast. I believe that for the first three and a half years, the religious system, not a godly system at all. It is a syncretistic, it is, it is more of what you're seeing. It is religious, but it is, I will never forget, and some of you will know the name Stanley Horton, okay, he was, he was actually um, the one that whet my appetite when I was in my 20s. He was a, a brilliant, brilliant, he was probably the most renowned Pentecostal scholar in our history. And I had eschatology class with him. I'm sitting in awe, my jaw's dropping when I'm in my 20s. Um, and Stanley Horton, um, I just lost my thought. Okay. When you turn 39, this happens quite a bit. <laughs> I was going to say it'll come back. Um, oh, it'll come back. It, concerning the um, the the one more the the beast, the first three and a half years, it'll come back. The train usually comes back on the track here. All right. So you've got the one world. You've got the one world government. Um, 
had to do with the woman sitting on the back of the beast. It's going to come back because it was something that he said. It'll be there. But she's sitting on Let's Let's go with it. It'll come back. She's sitting on the back of this beast. She thinks that she's controlling the government. Okay? Ah, here it is. I knew it would come back. Stanley Horton is in class, and he said, I have just come from a meeting in Springfield, Missouri. It's the buckle on the Bible belt in Springfield, Missouri. Okay? And he said, I was there with religious leaders, Protestant leaders, different, you know, different religions and so on. But the sound of it was, this is Protestant leaders in Springfield, Missouri. And there was a statement made against the Assemblies of God in that meeting, and he came back to report this to the students. He said, they stood up to say, how can you people be so insistent on your beliefs as if you have the only way? And this is what one of them said. Don't you know that everybody's climbing the same mountain to God or goddess? Whatever is up at the top of the mountain, everybody finds their way to the top. And one way is not better than another way. Everybody finds their way. He brought that to class. I'm glad that I remember, okay, because that is quintessential. That is postmodernism. That is where the religious world, you need to thank the Lord that you're in a body of Christ, in our fellowship, in this local church, where you're hearing the word of God, and we're true to the word of God. But you have to understand that's not the case in a lot of what's being done in the name of Christianity. And there is a movement on the global level. And so much of this, um, we are being very Europeanized, okay? Because this has already been decades in Europe where you can identify with religion. But, I mean, there was a church, I remember when I was in my 20s and we were ministering, we were ministering in Germany. We went right over the border into France. And in the front, in the, the cathedral, was the horoscope. Over it was it was over the whole front of the church. It was the horoscope, and I've been in another cathedral in another country where they had statutes to the sun god in the cathedral. In the you know happened to be a Roman Catholic cathedral. So in other words, there is this syncretism, this syncretism, and that is what I believe the one world church will be. Have you seen the bumper sticker coexist? That's that's what this is. It is. You need to respect every world religion. Listen, I can respect somebody and disagree with them, and I can love them to show them that that is not where you still have to deal with your sin, okay? It might have some nice moral principles, but who's going to deal with your sin? If you think you're going to work your way to Allah or whatever, to Zen, you know, Nirvana, all this stuff, you're, and it's endless, But that's what I believe the table is being set. I don't have time to teach this, but postmodernism today, we don't even realize. It drives postmodernism that says there is no God whose story we're living. Nobody has a right to correct anybody else. It's 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 social evolution. Everything is just in this flux, and there is no absolute truth, and so on. This is driving. I tell students at Valley Forge, you need to thank the Lord. Because if you were in a university otherwise, the secular, postmodernism is driving it. And that's what's going to give birth to this. The Antichrist is going to say, everybody just worship however you want. However those 1.2 billion or whatever Christians are gone, 
but you still have a religious bent. You worship any way that you want to worship. And for three and a half years, peace treated with the Jews. Muslims are able to worship. Um, I have my, my thoughts about how all that's going to happen in the Temple Mount. Can't go into that. That's a whole nother hour. Um, but he breaks the covenant. She thinks she's riding in the back of the beast. The one world church who I happen to believe is going to be led by that false prophet. That's why he's called the prophet. He's like the, he's like the counterfeit for the Holy Spirit. You have a Holy Spirit, and then you have a wicked, evil spirit, and, the, and that has controlled the false prophet. And the false prophet is leading for three and a half years this one world system of worship. Worship any way you want. If you want to be a god or goddess yourself, worship yourself any way you want to worship. That's fine. She thinks she's controlling the government. If you read, and let me show you something, in in Revelation chapter 17, and you're introduced to this woman on the back of the beast, okay, in Revelation 17, but look at verse 16. The beast and the ten horns. So this represents the one world government, Ten horns, we're already told, represents ten kingdoms, but it can refer to just a ten-part confederation. I have on my laptop, I think I told you this, from the European Union. I still have it as a file. I don't know if you'll still find it on their website, but European Union has the world divided by ten zones. thought that was very, very interesting. Their map showed the world divided into ten zones, Okay. And here we are, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Why? If she's the one world church and that's demonic, why would the beast, who's the one world government, hate the woman? Um, Demons sometimes don't get along with each other. There are, you know, seven times more fierce. Jesus spoke about that. I think that there are different rankings of fallen angels. I think that everything that is evil that you see in human personalities and jealousy and everything, where's that all coming from? The kingdom of darkness. I believe that the the one world government turns on the one world church and it says this, they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. Why is this? I, this is my impression, it's not reading into scripture, but you, you, it's an interpretation. It says earlier in chapter 17, I'll give you the exact verse, it says, the beast, here it is, chapter 17 and verse 8, the beast, that's the first beast, that's the one world government, and the leader of the one world government, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. Go back to chapter 13. The whole world is going to wonder, how does this person, he's here, then he's gone, and then he's back again. Some people say, well, that's just, that's the world, that's a government. And the government went away, and then Roman government came back. I don't think it's all that. I think it's more than that. Because this beast is thrown personally into the lake of fire, along with Satan, along with the false prophet. There is personal, eternal judgment. I think it's an individual. This is my take, and it it aligns with what you see in one of the minor prophets. I think the Antichrist will suffer a deadly wound, or at least a counterfeit deadly wound. And it says he comes up out of the abyss. The abyss, abysmo, it meant the place of disembodied spirits. 
He comes up out of Hades, which means he had to die, or at least there is a counterfeit death. I think that after three and a half years of letting everybody do what they want to do, the woman on the back of the beast, worship any way you want to worship, sometimes that's what politicians will do. They'll give you what you want. Okay, everybody happy? Everybody's going to worship any way you want to worship? Um, Everything should be fine now. Three and a half years into it, if the scenario is he suffers this, something causes him to be, not be, and then come up out of the abyss. I think when he comes up out of the abyss, he's not just demon-possessed anymore. It says that the dragon gives him power. And I believe he becomes satanically possessed. I think this individual who's leading the one world government is going to be satanically possessed. And then you link that to what Paul says, and it's not poetry, it's straight teaching. Second Thessalonians in chapter 2, there is one called the, the man of, uh, of lawlessness who sits in the temple taking the authority of God upon himself. He usurps, he mocks the things of God. I think what happens three and a half years in is he comes up, out of the abyss and says, I will receive all the worship now. No more worshiping angels or yourself or false gods or one world, whatever religions. No, all the worship. That's what you see towards the end of chapter 13. That the whole world is given to worship the beast. Follow that now. That's the two expressions. Yes, sister. To the Christians who won't do that. Okay. Well, first of all, I do believe, and we've we've expressed this, and Pastor Jeff, I think if I re- I heard, did you teach on the free trip, the rapture of the church, and that that week in between? So I do have this conviction that the body of Christ at large, as the bride, will be gathered to be with the Lord before the tribulation. However, please understand, people are going to be saved during the tribulation. And those are, John makes it very clear that there are those under the, uh, uh, under the altar in heaven, that's chapter 6, that there are those who are, they're in their, they are clothed with a temporary body. It says there are souls under the altar. They are the tribulation saints. I know some people say that chapter 7 and the multitude without number before the throne, those are the people who are being killed during the tribulation, and they just keep... No, that's not. It's not. They're in their resurrected bodies already. They're waving palm branches with glorified bodies. They're already raptured before the scroll opens. But before that all happens, in the scroll, preface, one of the seals is the fifth seal, you see souls under the altar. Connect the souls under the altar with Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Let me take you there for a moment. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. It says this. I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. This is during the the millennium, right at the beginning of the millennium. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark in their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned. They were already alive. Their souls, they're speaking, they're praying, they're crying out to the Lord for all of those years of the tribulation. They're not dead spiritually. Their souls are alive. What does it mean come to life? It means their bodies are resurrected. 
So in other words, John is making a very, very clear distinction between the multitude already raptured in the presence of Almighty God and those souls that are under the altar that are waiting and saying, how much longer, Lord? How much longer will this be? When are you going to take vengeance upon those that come against the people of God? And he says, there's a full number that's got to be added here. Okay, so they are the person. So in other words, people are getting saved. People are getting saved. Don't stop ministering. Don't stop ministering to the unsaved loved one, your friends and colleagues, your, your family members. Because even if they're not raptured and they're not part of that bride now, they will remember. They will remember what you said to them when they see all of these things taking place. A question or comment? says that in Revelation 6, so let's explain that very quickly. In Revelation chapter 6, if you look at the fifth seal, chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of this, under the altar, this is in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony. They called out in a loud voice, so we know they're alive. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? To each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be, who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So in other words, there are more people... They did not. They did not have that resurrection day as the church was raptured, as you see in chapter 7. They are waiting until all of the tribulation saints. The altar there is referring, and there are two ways. Well, I, I think that the, you have to understand that the prototype for the temple, you know, we have the, we have the fulfillment. You, know, you have the visible on earth, the antitype. You, you, have the temp, you have the tabernacle and then the temple, and there, wasn't, there were actually two altars. This is how I look at that altar. It's not the altar of incense. It's the altar of sacrifice. And in heaven, I think there is a type. It's the prototype. It is the original. Okay? Now, are we going to see an altar? I don't think that we are. Because I think that, you know, John said later on, I didn't even see a temple. The Lamb of God. He's the temple. He fulfills it all. But what is expressed in an altar, I believe, is this. It's a place of laying down your life. Remember that Paul spoke in terms of, my life is being poured out as an offering, like a drink offering. Um, Paul said, I'm suffering in my body to fill up what still remains in the sufferings of Christ. What is that, taking away from redemption is an altar like you're paying for your own sin? Not at all. What it simply means is this that you were, you were making a sacrifice. You were pouring out your lifeblood before the Lord for his name's sake, for the gospel's sake, it says here, for their witness. So I think it's symbolic, but John was seeing it as, as the, the symbol was real in front of him, and I think it's, it, is, it is speaking of the laying down of your life for the cause of Christ, to truly be a martyr, okay? Now, three strands, one world government, one world religious system, the woman... The, the great harlot, and then you have, and we didn't cover this, but you have the notes for this, chapter 18 is the one world economic system, the commercial system. I, I just very lightly touched on it, but we couldn't cover anything. Please, I don't have time even tonight to cover that. But I want you to see that we're covering every aspect of human life during that time, and even today. 
even today. You, the, the world is moving in such a direction, so... This nation was established as, as a Christian nation. There's no question. Early church fathers literally said this nation was founded in the honor of Jesus Christ. There are statements like that. It was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Today, we're not just in a post-Christian United States. By and large, because you need to understand where this upcoming generation is, 4%, 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview. There is an anti-Christian sentiment in this country now. Okay, And that can change. I'm believing that there can be an awakening. God can move. There can be a revival in churches and awakening. But I think that we are already seeing the Babylon world system being raised up. It's all, the, all the platform is there. And it's going to encompass every part of human life. The political system, the religious system, the commercial system, which I'm sure also takes in the whole educational system and so on. So in other words, what John is showing us is this Babylon that was from ancient days, right from the days of the Tower of Babel and Nimrod and all this rebellion and Semiramis is now regurgitated. Now it raises its ugly head in the last days. It's mixed with this idea of Rome that that John was immediately seeing because he's on the island of Patmos because of the government of Rome, but he's mixing it all together saying this is the spirit of this world and it's got a grip. And what's so sad is with every one of these judgments, I think that God is calling to human civilization, repent, repent. And it keeps saying, but they curse the God of heaven and refuse to repent. God's giving them opportunity. But the inhabitants of the earth. Now, now let me tell you, now let me take us after all of that sordid stuff to one of the most beautiful scenes. Apart from Jesus himself in chapter 1, And this is where, as I look back over these notes, please come back to me. You have, okay, it should pop up here, and everything's changed on my screen. Um, Okay, I guess it went to sleep. So you're... (laughs) My laptop's doing all kinds. That's Philadelphia. You pray for Philadelphia, okay? That's where I'm pastoring now on the west side. I'm going to try to expand this. Mm, Everything gets, it changes as soon as I plug in. So let me try to do this first. So sorry. Everything was in place, and then when it goes to sleep, i got to reset everything. I'm going to ask you to go to these notes. Open the notes for chapter 19. That's the first pages you've received tonight. All right, I'm going to plug in, and hopefully we're going to be... All right, I mean, you have the notes in front of you, but I want us to be able to... Please come back. (laughs) Love technology. All right, it's doing all kinds of things here. I'm going to try to expand this. I I just want us all to be looking at... Here we go. All right. Now, I want to... I'm going to move through this rather quickly. I'm cognizant of the time. And I'm going to show you a few pictures. Because what you see in chapter 19 
as much as there is what we call the, 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 the satanic trinity, the dragon, Satan, the false prophet, the, the, the false beast, counterfeits for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Satan has always had a counterfeit for the holy things of God. But now you come to something that's incredibly beautiful. And this, uh, let's, let's read it in chapter 19. We come to this. Chapter 19. John says, you remember those two words in the English after this? Remember a long time ago I gave you the, the Greek words are metatauta. Every time you see after this, it's a shifting. The next thing, the next thing. He has a new vision. And in this vision, he says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah. Recently, because I do a lot of driving, I put in an old CD that I had and I listened to the entire um, uh, Handel's Messiah. I listened to it a couple of times. And then the hallelujah chorus. It, that's a miracle in itself. That was, a, you realize the Handel wrote that entire 21 days, I think it was. It was a miracle. But when you come to the hallelujah chorus, but John hears the original hallelujah chorus, and it's in four-part harmony. So follow this with me, and I'm going to stay close to the notes because there's some incredible things here. Just follow the notes with me, and I, um, I'm going to bring up some slides here as well. He said, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. I give you the, the Hebrew there, Halal Yah. Praise Yahweh is really what Hallelujah. Four times. As a matter of fact, you don't see Hallelujah except in this chapter, four times. Otherwise, it's not in the New, in the New Testament. Uh, it's not in Greek except here. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I'm giving you the Greek words because they connect. In the notes, you'll see how they connect where the angels have been saying this before. And, and for true and just are his judgments. In other words, everything that's just been unfolded in the scroll, it's true. It's just. God was right in bringing this to the earth. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her, idol- her adulteries, spiritual adultery, idolatry. Um, um, you know, Paul said, I'm so concerned for you, Corinthians, that, that I have spoused you to one, one husband. How can you, in other words, play the field? There is so much marriage language in the Bible to the people of God. I want to show you some of this as we move ahead. But this evil one has, rather than the true bridegroom, she's taken the people of of this earth to adultery. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Do you know how many godly people have died in the name of religion? There have been probably, I just share with my, with my AG history class, and we did a little backstory. You realize the 30-year war was in the name of Christianity? Do you realize in Europe, and this would be the late 1500s, one half of all of Germany, that area known as Germany today, one half of the people were killed in that war. As many as in all of Europe in 30 years of Christians in the name of Christianity, Roman Catholics and Lutherans fighting between one-third and one-half of everybody in Europe within 30 years were killed because of the ravages of war directly and then the famines and the disease that came. 
all in the name of Christianity? Come on. This is, this is not the heart of God. And so um, I, what I'm showing you here, the blood of his servants was in the name of the one world church. There is a counterfeit. There is a counterfeit that even uses the name of the Lord and it grieves the heart of God. The second hallelujah. And again they shouted hallelujah. And the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. A reminder that this conflict will end. God will not let this continue. He will have the final word. Part of why the scroll is open. God's going to settle the score. Third hallelujah, the 24 elders, we've been introduced to them. They represent us. The four living creatures, I believe, represents all of the created world. Fell down and worshiped God who who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. I'm going to go on. The fourth hallelujah, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters. Can you imagine? Like the loud peals of thunder. John's hearing... Upwards of how many people through all of human civilization have given their hearts to the Lord? Old Testament as well in anticipation. Probably about 2 billion people. He hears them worshiping God. I was so blessed in chapel just to have 450 students on campus. We have a lot more online. Just 450 students praising the Lord was awesome. We have wonderful worship. Can you imagine 2 billion people? bringing praise before the Lord. This is what John hears. At this, and and you have to understand, let me just connect you to verse 10 for a moment. I jump ahead for a moment. When John sees all of this in heaven, this wedding feast and all of this, it says, and I I just want to connect here, verse 10, I fell at his feet. He falls at the feet of this angel, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the test. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I told you from day one, chapter one, it's all about Jesus. All the focus of this, it is his revelation. He is the one who opens the scroll. He's the one that cleanses the earth to bring the inheritance that was lost through sin back to us, the co-heirs. Now, I want to bring you into this. We're just going to talk this through, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit about this marriage theme. Go with me in chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, some people will say, see, this proves post-trib, that it's not until after the seven bowls are poured out and so on that you see the bride in heaven. That's not true. We've already seen this same group before the throne of God in chapter 7. Some people will say, no, all the Christians, they're all dying. They're all, and they they dismiss what you see before the throne of God in chapter 7. There's a problem with that. These people are the bride. You have two pictures in chapter 19. You see the bride of Christ gathered at the marriage to the Lord Jesus. She is already clothed in white. She's in her resurrected body. There's a marriage in heaven. Then the next picture, which we're going to cover in just a moment, is she comes back. Now she's an army. Now she's an army. But this, what you, this is very, very important. What about those tribulation saints? 
Is it true that we all go through the tribulation and basically every Christian is killed for their faith in Christ? Eventually every Christian is killed. How could that be if those who, who have been killed under the Antichrist don't come back to life until chapter 20 and verse 4? That's important to understand. All the souls you saw under the altar in chapter 6 is part of the scroll what's going on in the tribulation. Don't even come back to life until we come back with Jesus. I think what John is doing is showing us. I showed you them worshiping before the throne. Let me show you the other side of this. She's a bride. She's also an army. And I want to build on this for just a moment. This this should just bring joy to our hearts. Let us rejoice. I want to paint this picture. Just follow the notes. I'm going to stay close to the notes. I tell students, otherwise I'm going to be all over. We need to focus here. Of all the word pictures the Bible uses, I'm up at the top of the second page for chapter 19. I love this picture. The greatest word picture, the greatest metaphor for the church is the marriage. This intimate love is revealed. I'm just going to read. In the words God chooses to describe our relationship with him. Over and over again, we're the bride, he's the bridegroom. We understand that, that's basic. But do you know then in Isaiah and so many other places, think about this, Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over her bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I want to just develop something, and I'm just going to hit this as quickly as I can and just stay close to the notes. Through the years I've done this study, and I have just been amazed at how detailed the plan of salvation and redemptive history, the way that God addresses his children, both Old and New Testament, parallels detail after detail to the ancient Jewish wedding custom. We don't see it, but those early believers, they saw it. Those Jewish people that came to know Jesus, they got it. When Jesus says, and the night before he goes to the cross, in my father's house are many rooms, we're not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Do you realize in Hebrew, that was the phrase that a bridegroom would say to his bride after they were engaged? They could live in the same community, but for one year they'd be engaged, and he would go to his father's house and build an annex in the house uh, or on the property of the father to get the house ready to come back, and they would see each other. They hadn't consummated the marriage A marriage price was already paid. She was betrothed to him. It was contractual. You don't break this. What would she do for one whole year? She would go through ritual baths, keeping herself pure, and she would anticipate the day. That's not my phone, I hope. Okay. Um, I was in the middle of teaching this morning, and all of a sudden, Siri picked up on something, and she started going off, and I'm like, whoa, this is weird, (laughs) in the middle of class, so I think I'm all right. That must be somebody else's phone. So, um, (laughs) she's anticipating the day of his return. Let me take this step by step. Watch how this goes. This is ancient Jewish, and I'm just going to hit a few of hundreds of details. At the invitation of the father, the initiation, who started? Who initiated the bride, the marriage of the bridegroom, the, the father of the groom? The initiation of the father, we have a father in heaven. The marriage is arranged. Jesus said, John 6, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
Then, a lot of times, the marriage was arranged before the two of them were even born. And Jesus said, even before he had made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Then, while the couple was still young, there was what was known as a ketuvah. The marriage contract was signed. I have a picture of that. It's in here. So here's the ketuvah. Sometimes while they're still young, they're teenagers, okay? There's this ketuvah. I want you to see this. It's the marriage contract. Included in the ketuvah was the husband's obligations to his wife and provisions for her protection. In the ketuvah, in this contract, was what was known as the mohar. That was a monetary gift from the groom to the bride. Jesus paid the price for us to buy us to himself. His blood was the mohar. It was called the bride price to the Jewish people. And it was all based on the father's wealth and the worth of the bride. And Jesus said, you're worth my lifeblood. I will lay down. It was not with perishable things, First Peter, but with the precious blood of Christ that we've been bought. No one saw that price like Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies 800 years before and says he doesn't even look human anymore when he's tortured on the cross and beaten. But let's go on. There was another gift that was given directly, not the groom's father, but the groom at the wedding time would give a gift to his bride. We're told that Jesus would give us the Holy Spirit as a gift. Think of that. Going on, when the terms of the ketuvah was satisfied, all was set at a table. Get this picture. They would have a table, and they would, the groom would pour wine into the cup, grape juice into that cup, and he would say, this cup, I'm, I'm proposing to you with this cup. If you accept this cup and drink this blood, then we will be engaged. It was through the symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting that sacrifice, that we come into this engagement going on. The groom sealed his proposal. He pours out the wine. If she accepted, they are called betrothed. Remember Mary and Joseph. It says that she was betrothed to her husband. It is contractual. They would not consummate the marriage for another year, but they were considered husband and wife already. You do not dare break that. 2 Corinthians 11.2 uses that very term, I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a, a pure virgin to Christ. Let's go on. Through le- though legally bound to each other, they would not consummate the marriage nor drink from the cup again for another year until they're actually married. What did Jesus say? For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I'm not going to have this until the marriage feast of the Lamb. We will not sit at the table again. Detail after detail after detail going on. Look at point three. For one year, the groom dedicates himself. He prepares a place. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. The Jewish man would always say that to his bride. Going to father's house. I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you where I am. I'm going to come and get you and bring you. And this is how, and just think of all the verses now. Remember the parable of the ten virgins? Straight out of ancient Judaism. She would be gathered. She knew the general time. She knew it would be around midnight. She knew, you know, it's somewhere in these days. So they would just wait. They would wait. And what was going on at Father's house, the bridegroom would have his attendants with him, the best man. And it was always the father who would say to his son, son, your home is ready. 
go get your bride. Remember when Jesus said, no man knows the hour, not even the Son of Man? And you scratch your head and say, but Jesus, you're God. Of course you know when you're coming back. What he was saying is, it's not my call. The Father will tell me when it's time to come and get my bride. The first thing they would do after the Father says it's time, and it was almost always around midnight hour, element of surprise. She's with the bridegrooms, they, uh, with, the, with the bridemaids. They have to make sure they've got oil in their lamps because it's at midnight and they've got to walk through the streets. And the first thing that will happen as he leaves Father's house, there is the blast of the shofar, the trumpet call of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the shout of the archangel, the best man, would shout in the streets, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. Maybe it's going to be Michael the archangel that shouts. There's going to be a trumpet blast. The bridegroom is coming for us. They come to the house of the bride. Let me show you something here. And I've got to go back for a moment. Do you know in that ancient day, they would get the bride and they would lift her into the air. We would be caught up with him in the air, it says. And they would carry her in procession to the house of the father. Okay, They would then have a, and I'll show you this next, this is called the uh, the um, chupa, and I'll just hit this very, very quickly. I've, I've already covered chapter uh, point four. Look at point five. At father's house, together, the bride and the groom entered the chupa. It's called the covering. Mm, okay, this gets a little brusque because we live in our world. You have to know this was a beautiful thing in that day. The chupa was the bedchamber. Today, Jewish people will marry under chupa, which means the covering. By the way, you can read it. I've got the verse there, such as in Joel chapter 2, verse 16. Look at the top of the page. Let the bridegroom go forth from his chamber, and the bride out of her chuppah is the name in the Hebrew. This is spiritually what happens. We are engaged to Jesus right now. Spiritually, there's a consummation of the marriage when we get to heaven. And you have to know on earth in ancient times... This messes with our minds because we, this is, we just live in a different world. They celebrated purity. The whole community knew this young man and young woman. They would go into Kupa and consummate the marriage, and they would come out and announce she was a chaste virgin. Now we are married in the sight of the Father. This is what they would do. And how long would they celebrate? Interesting. They celebrate for seven days. Seven days they celebrate. I'm thinking that maybe there's a parallel there because we're in heaven while seven years of tribulations here on the earth, seven, as it were in the ancient times, seven days of celebrating what they called the marriage feast. There are a few other pictures. This is the chupa. Let's see, the ketuvah. Yeah, there'd be a marriage feast. They would party in Israel in that day, and for seven days they would fellowship and have a one. This is what John is thinking when he says, Rejoice! The bridegroom has come for his bride. When we get to heaven, the first order of business, and I have this in the notes, and we'll cover it in detail because other passages in the Bible, it's the Bema judgment. I know people say the Bema, but it's actually in Greek, the Bema judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ. When you are raptured before the Lord, I don't know how the Lord, and he is omniscient, he is, uh, he, he is a, he's God himself, we're going to stand before Jesus. 
The Bema judgment is not a judgment of whether or not you're saved. It's a judgment for the saved. Have you honored the Lord? Have you used those talents? Is there a lot of wood, hay, and stubble here? Or is there gold, silver, and precious stone? That's the question. The gold, silver, precious stone gets only more purified in the fire. All the other stuff, there's stuff in Christians' lives that God doesn't want to see in heaven. Jesus washes our feet all the time to cleanse us. Progressive sanctification. You're already saved. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter? Saved yet as by fire. When I stand before the Lord Jesus, I think I'm going to fall in a heap at his feet. He's going to search my heart. Everything is going to be brought before the Lord. And I think all of us, when we see his holiness and his glory, that's the picture here. But then he invites us. And I, th- I happen to think this is part of the wiping away of the tears of our eyes because there's going to be a lot of regrets. Why didn't I reach more people? Why didn't I follow you more closely? You're so beautiful, Jesus. John falls like a dead man. Why didn't I see this? Why didn't I spend more time with you? And I think that he wipes away the tears of our eyes. And as it were, he says, come to the table with me. I told you that I would drink again of this cup. Now come to the table. And this is the marriage feast of the Lamb. Um, any questions on this? I just, I, I just, there's the Bema judgment. I just wanted to hit this. I want you to see how beautiful this picture is. The Jewish mind would have looked at this. It is the consummation. This is the finality of all of the Jewish details of a wedding. Finally, in the book of Revelation, you've got the wrap-up. We are with him forever and ever. There's another picture, though. What's the next order of business? We're in heaven. It's timeless, okay? I'm talking, yes, seven days, but in heaven, you're not going to know time. But there is a time in God's plan when we come back with him. And I want to just hit this yet. I want us to go to the next set of notes, and it's going to be hard for me to pick up because it's sort of scrambled. I'm going to try to bring this up. Okay, here it is. Come to verse 11. Now, most of this I'm going to skip over because I've touched on this in other ways. When you talk about the return of the Lord, remember that there are two phases of the return of the Lord. One is where he comes and gathers us to be with him. Now, that can simply mean he comes to the second heavens and we go. What does that mean that we meet him in the air? I think he just speaks that word and we are gathered to be with him. It says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, boom, we are in his presence. Does he, it says he comes for us, so how far does he come? Does he come in the, in the clouds? There's no indication with the, with the rapture that people can see that happening. We go to meet him in the air, it says. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. On that way, boom, we are in a resurrected body when we arrive there. In that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you, you know Ashley, Sister Fogel, Pastor Fogel, you know Ashley. And Ashley whimpered one night. I was trying to get her to sleep, and she was whimpering. And I said, Daddy, I said, Ashley, what's the matter? She said, Daddy, you told me that we're going to be going to heaven, and, and, and we're going to go meet Jesus in the air, and I'm so afraid. I, I'm going to fly. I don't want to fly like that. She was like five years old. And I said, Ashley, she really needed to sleep. This is how her mind is still to this day. She's a pastor's wife, and her, oh, my goodness. I said, just blink your eyes. Blink your eyes like that. She did. I said, that's how quickly. You're going to be in heaven with Jesus just like that. Oh, I'm good with that. Okay. I don't have to fly. I'll just be in, in, in heaven with Jesus in a new body. She got that. That's how it's going to be. But then at the end of all this tribulation, 
we're coming back with Jesus. And I just want to hit this quickly. You've been very gracious. But remember, the first phase is going to meet him. The second phase is where every eye will see him. Every human being will see him at the end of the tribulation. You have verses like this. His feet, Zechariah, physically touched the Mount of Olives. You have all of this, but let me jump to the second page. I'm going to go over verse uh, part A there. I've already dealt with that. Remember when we talked about the, the, the person and the white horse back in chapter 6? Is that Jesus? Absolutely not. Those notes there showed us that. The notes here... This rider is completely different from that rider in chapter 6. The only thing that's, in, that's similar is that they ride a white horse. A white horse was always known as a horse that you would ride to conquer. But everything else is very different about that person because that's the Antichrist in chapter 6. This is Jesus. And this is how Jesus is described. Look at the rider's appearance. His eyes are like blazing fire. Just like John saw in chapter 1, looks right through you. He's the judge of the living and the dead. On his head, many crowns. And this is diadem. The one that rider, the white horse in chapter 6, it says it's a Stephanus. And the Stephanus was a wilting. It only lasted a few days. The diadem was eternal. It was a crown that would never lose its value. And he has many, many crowns. Why? Because he's king over all other kings. It's a way of restating um, um, Revelation 11.5 and the 15, Revelation 11.15, and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He reigns over all of the world. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. What does this mean? Most of the years of my ministry, I've looked at that and said, Jesus died for us and he shed his blood and there's blood on his garment. I don't think that's what it is. I know he shed his blood for us. If you compare this with Isaiah 63, this is judgment. When he comes back in that white horse, it's the blood of those who have opposed him. It's taking vengeance upon this world for what they've done to the people of God for millennia of time. That's the blood. It says in Isaiah, if you you read it, who is this one whose garment is splattered with blood? And in that context, it talks about he comes to bring judgment upon the wicked. I don't think this is speaking of his own blood there. Obviously, we know he sheds his blood, but I don't think that's the picture here. Let's go on. Look at the writer's name very quickly. His name is faithful, which means in Greek trustworthy. You can trust him. True. He's the real one. There have been false messiahs. He's the real messiah. He has a name written on him that no one knows. It's a Greek word that means fully know. Can we really understand who God is himself? We just begin, for all of eternity, we're going to be knowing, learning that name, but only he knows it fully. And his name is the word of God. Think about John expressing this. He was so big on the logos on the word of God in his teaching. Think about it. He's the eternal word, John 1.1, 1, 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's the creative word. Through him all things were made. He's the incarnate. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. John is just, this means so much that his name is 
the word of God. On his robe, and, and, and I have that word even in the Greek language, that an can mean even. It means on his robe, even on his thigh. I remember Stanley Horton teaching this and said, the Greek can either mean it's written right on his thigh or on the garment that covers his thigh. This is where a younger generation, they keep bringing this up and say, tattoos are cool. Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. I've heard this how many times from young people. They just literally, Christian young people are justifying tattoos because they say Jesus has a tattoo on his. It is, I mean, it is, the Greek will allow that, by the way, here. It, well, I'm not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> let's go to the next page. This is important. The writer's comrades. Who comes back with him? We wrap up with this. The writer's comrades. This is important. Who is it that comes back? I I remember sitting. There was a lady that came to us in Calvary Temple years ago, and she was insistent on post-tribulation. Christians will go through, and you just want the easy way out, not understanding the wrath of God upon sin on this earth. And she said, this whole idea that Christians come back with Jesus, it's the angels that come back with Jesus. That's who it is. Yeah, angels will. But Scripture is clear. You and I come back with Jesus. And those souls that are under the altar have not yet been in their resurrected bodies until we come back. So we are a different, we are the body of Christ, we're the bride of Christ. Others will be brought into this, but they're still under the altar. They're still disembodied spirits. We're in our glorified body. Look what Joel says, bring down your warriors, Lord. He, he prophesies this. Uh, this would be about 750 years before Jesus. Bring down, Jude says, see, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Could be angels, could be Christians, could be saints. It just means the sanctified or holy ones. Zechariah 14.5, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So is it angels or is it Christians? It's both. Who are these who ride back with Jesus? And, and do you remember what it says here? It says, if you look in... Um, I'm looking for the, on verse 14, the armies, note it's plural, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. He's not alone when he comes back. It doesn't, again, armies. I believe that holy armies will accompany Jesus. Matthew 25 and 2 Thessalonians make it clear, angels. But there are other verses Uh, Let's just read this quickly. A holy bride is going to come back with him too. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. Just look at this please with me quickly. Colossians 3, 4 says this. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then go to chapter 17 and verse 14. This is even clearer. Chapter 17 and verse 14, when you've got this ten-part confederation, this one-world government under the, under the Antichrist, what does it say in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14? It says, they, the world, will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's not angels. Those are the redeemed. 
Yes, angels will come back. They've always been involved in judgment. But I believe that we're riding back with the Lord Jesus. And that verse above all makes that very clear. We're coming back with the Lord Jesus. Um, and then finally, the conquest with justice. The last verse, he judges and makes war. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. There are a lot of details. You can read these notes. The final two victories, look at the bottom of page 3, chapter 19 notes. There are two great victories against the kingdom of darkness will follow. Judgment of the armies of the kings of the earth. I believe this is what's referred to in different places in the book of Revelation. You put, the, put this all together with the book of Zechariah. God is going to call the nations to the doorstep of Jerusalem. You also have Har Megiddo, which means the mountain of Megiddo. I believe in that valley where you can fit hundreds of thousands of troops. I believe that that's the place just north of Judea, north of Samaria. Just, um, you know what's so cool? When you're there, you're on, the, on Mount Carmel. If, how many have been? You're, are you taking a trip to Israel? I, I heard that, right? Isn't your church? You've you got to go. It's incredible. You're standing there looking south from the Mount Carmel where Elisha calls down fire. You're looking at the Valley of Megiddo, the second most powerful air force in the world, the Israeli Air Force, is flying sorties in front of you, sonic booms all over the place. They're guarding it because they know it's coming to that valley. That's their headquarters. That is the headquarters for the second most powerful air force right there. You look over and you see the Mediterranean, but then you look over, and this is so cool to me, you see, can't see Galilee, it's on the other side of the hill. You can see way off in the distance, Nazareth. Nazareth, and the city is on this side. Every day growing up, Jesus would look out in the sky as a little boy, as a teenager. That's the sky where I'm coming back someday. This is the valley of Armageddon, Har Megiddo. There's the mountain of Megiddo right over here. There's Mount Carmel. This valley is where that final book of Revelation chapter 19 shows. It is a bloodbath. Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 14 says, God calls the nations. One last time, I call the nations. You've hated me. You've hated my people. I will settle the score. Antichrist thinks he's calling the governments of the world, 10-nation confederate or whatever, however it's called in that day, 10 zones, all the nations to come against Israel. By the way, they found oil in Israel. It's the crossroads of three continents. There's a lot of reasons why Israel, smaller than the state of New Jersey, is constantly in the news for thousands of years. Okay, there's a reason, and there's a spiritual reason, not just the you know the, the natural reason. The enemy wants to own that, and God says, "I have an appointment with the nations here," and God settles the score, and that's what you see by the end. And then, not just the armies of the kings of the earth, and you could read all of this. By the way, compare Scripture with Scripture. Just let the Scriptures interpret each other, and it all makes sense. Please remember this. Revelation is the most Old Testament, New Testament book. Over 400 times you can relate Scripture in the Old Testament back to what John is saying. Then the beast and the false prophet 
are thrown into the lake of fire. They are not seen as a system. They are seen as individuals who will suffer eternal damnation. They lead systems, the one world government, the one world church. They are personally thrown. And then look at the passing of time. And I haven't had time to cover this, and I need to honor the fact that it's later now. Once you get into chapter 20, that's the millennial reign of Christ. Thousand years of time. You say, why is that going to be? I have a relative that doesn't hold to this at all. Just like the Roman Catholic Church and some in the Presbyterian Church, most of their history have been amillennial, which means there's no real millennium. That's what it means. And I have a cousin who said, what's the value? Why? Let's just all go to heaven. Why are you going to have another thousand years? Because this is the time when God fulfills every covenant. The only covenant that's been fulfilled is the new covenant. We know the Lord Jesus, but you've got the Davidic covenant, you've got the Palestinian covenant, you have the Noahic covenant. You have all these covenants that during the millennial reign, and I go into the detail, when you turn to the chapter 20 notes, you can see this. Jesus is coming to rule and reign and praise the Lord no more. Republicans, Democrats, independents, socialists, all of that's gone. Jesus is a theocracy. All of the governments of this world yield, and Jesus is the king. Zechariah says there's one king over the earth in that day. I'm looking forward to that. We'll be in our glorified body, but we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ from the new Jerusalem over the earth. I give you a lot of verses if you go into chapter 20. Many, many times, Jesus even told the disciples in the restoration, you're going to be reigning over cities, and you're going to, I'm going to, you know, if you've been faithful in little things, you're going to reign over much, and over and over again, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. Thousand years, why? Why this millennium? And why would the devil be bound for a thousand years in the abyss only to be released again? You know that there is a passing of time. Some people look at that and say, oh, that's just, that's sort of like overlaying thousand years, just a symbolic word uh, meaning, and that just means the, all that's happened since the cross. It's just another way of saying it. And that Satan just at the end of all of it. And so I have a relative and I love him, but I disagree very, very much. And one of the last things I said before we stopped debating prophecy and theology like this was, I said, you're telling me that right now Satan is bound in a bottomless pit? You're telling me that right now, because if you hold to preterism and all this and it gets a little technical, preterism literally says that the second coming of Christ was in 70 AD because the second coming of Christ was judgment on the nation of Israel. God destroyed Israel for rejecting him, and that was the end of Israel. That's the teaching. And that this is the new heavens and the new earth now. And that an absolute preterist say that you are already in your glorified body, and I'm like, are you kidding me? If this is my glorified body, Lord, help me. Help me. But I'm telling you, that's the teaching. That is the teaching, because they'll look at the book of Revelation as a nice allegory. Here's the, here's the problem with this. Number one, Satan is not bound in a bottomless pit right now. Peter says he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's a really long chain. If he's not deceiving the nations right now, then who is? Satan is deceiving the nations. But he's bound for a thought. Why would God let him out? 
to deceive the people once again. I think it's this. Yes. They're in their natural bodies. They're inhabiting the earth. And they've seen for a thousand years, they're no more atheists. Everybody knows the voice of God. We're in our glorified bodies. I've had people laugh at that. You're glorified bodies with natural people. Yeah. Um, Jesus was in his glorified body and walked into the room without using the door and ate with them. And in other words, mortals with immortals. Yeah, it's biblical. I think our home is heaven. I think the new Jerusalem. But I think that we're going to be ruling and reigning over this earth. And nobody's going to question spiritual things and the, the presence of God. And there are more atheists in the world. But what there is is what Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked. And after all, some people say, how could the Israelites, they, they watch the Egyptian army, they drown in the Red Sea, and they get on the other side, and a couple of days later, I wish we was back in Egypt. What about after a thousand years of peace and glory, and then Satan introduces It's not that there's not sin, but the the Bible shows that during the millennium, sin is judged very, very quickly. God doesn't allow it in the kingdom. How is it that hearts so quickly, it seems like it's the entire world. It says like it's it's a Hebraism, but it just means a great amount of people like the sand of the sea go after. I think what it shows us once and for all, we could never, ever have done this on our own. We are all Romans chapter 3. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. Satan has his way and leads, as it were, the entire world back into rebellion. And I think it's God's final statement of without the blood of Christ, there would be no hope. I think that's how he wraps it up. But then the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. So I know the thousand years is a period of time because it says he's thrown where the Antichrist and the beast, the second beast, the false prophet, had already been thrown. In other words, there's a passing of time. Their judge at the end of the tribulation thrown in the lake of fire. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. And then I wrap up with this, just to tell you the sequence that happens. You've got at the end of chapter 20, you've got the great white throne judgment. Everything in this universe. Remember Stanley Horton comes back. He said, and he was so brilliant that before he became a theologian, well-known theologian, he he was a very renowned chemist in California. His brain was like Harvard University had an open contract. They said, whatever you want, we'll pay you anything. He had no time for them. But I remember him saying this, when matter hits antimatter, and I don't even understand that has to do with positrons and neutrons and electrons, but when they meet, he said, there will be across this entire material world, which is beyond what we can conceive of. You realize the earth is like a grain of sand compared to all the created universe. And he said, in one moment, there will be an instantaneous flash of light, a boom, and there will be a vacuum. When matter hits antimatter, You know who's holding it all together right now? And I end with this. A good way to end. Jesus holds it all together. Paul says in Colossians 1, In him all things consist. 
He is the atomic glue. Scientists can measure now sub-subatomic particles, but to this day, they don't know what holds it together. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that Jesus will call back that word. Matter will hit antimatter. The new heavens, new earth, everything will be a vacuum. Into the vacuum, God will call up all of the dead who have rebelled against him before the great white throne judgment. Then when you get into chapter 21, it's the new heavens, new earth. Chapter 22, you have notes in detail. It's a real city. It's a real city. It's very, very cool. I need to stop because we could just go on for Pastor Jeff. So much to share, but thank you. Thank you so much. So a real city with or without tattoo parlors. No, just... <laughs> Jesus is the only one that the Bible says. So I was going to ask, our glorified bodies, are they going to be with or without tattoos? Okay, let's. Father, just thank you so much for just being found in you. And Lord, as the very beginning, in week one, blessed are those who read and hear and study these words, and take to heart these words. And Father, I ask that over the past six weeks, it's just not in one ear and out another, but Father, the words that we have heard, the words that we have read, Father, we take to heart to make ourselves pure and holy, ready to meet our groom. Father, just... Give us a burden for souls. And Lord, let us never, ever give up just telling of your love to others. In Jesus' name, amen.